Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is June 5th, 2015. Today's burning issue is territorial disputes. There are several places surrounding the Japanese archipelago that have traditionally given Japan problems internationally and geopolitically. If there is a conflict in the future, it will most likely start from these areas. That's why this is a burning issue that we're going to be handling today. By the way, this is our 15th podcast. Our numbers, the hits on our site, have exceeded 6,000. And I want to say thank you very much for everybody who is watching and passing this along to your friends. You can participate in our discussion, obviously, by providing comments right into the box on YouTube, or you can send us your comments at comments at tokyoonfire.com. You can also participate using hashtag TokyoOnFire. Our podcast is also available on iTunes. Today I'm joined with my co-host, Michael Chuchek. Michael Chuchek is adjunct professor at Temple University. He is also adjunct professor at Sophia University, which is just about 500 yards away from here. Michael, let's talk about these territorial issues. What are the flashpoints that you see? The, uh, the most obvious flashpoint is the most famous one, the ongoing confrontations, well, almost on a daily basis between the Coast Guards of Japan and China in what are called, in the Japanese version, the Senkaku Islands, and according to the Chinese, they're called the Diaoyu. Uh, this area of the world is seen as a major flashpoint by most analysts, not because there's anything truly of value. There might be hydrocarbons of some sort, gas, probably, oil, maybe, but basically it's a question of pride and identity. And both countries are deeply invested in either seizing the islands in the Chinese case or maintaining control over the islands in the Japanese. This has been going on for a long time. It's really started to reach a little bit more of a peak over the last five or six years, isn't that true? Well, it's been over the last five or six years, it's hit several really crisis moments that luckily at every time that things got really dicey, both sides pulled back. Right now we're in sort of a lull. There's the uh, number of Chinese vessels, both the vessels of the government, the, the Coast Guard, but also vessels that are private vessels that intrude inside the territorial waters areas around the Senkakus, they've been relatively few. They're not ever going, there's no time that there's a week that passes without anyone going in into these territorial waters. But it's as compared to the times in the, when Abe first came into, into power, in 2012, 2013, the number of incidents is way, way down. Mm -hmm. what's, the, what's the potential impact, though? I mean, the fact that both countries are fighting over, not quite fighting over, but actually fighting over um, who, who owns these islands. The potential impact there, is it just the 200-mile uh, economic zone? Is it the reaching out of Japan's territorial waters or China's territorial waters? or Is there more to that? It's hard to say what it's entirely about. Of course, because these are really islands and they stand above water, uh, they can generate an EEZ, an economic exclusion zone around them. At that point, they're pretty valuable in, if you're trying to seize underwater real estate. Mm -hmm. So Japan's claim of administrative control and indeed sovereignty over the, these islands does generate a claim on the seabed that China does not want to accede to. It doesn't want the, even the Japanese claim on the islands themselves to exist, but it certainly does not want to lose access to the seabed. The East China Sea for them is, an, uh, is a place rich with potential for possible resource collections, 
And they simply get very, very antsy and very, very defensive when there's any possibility that they won't get access mm -hmm. to any kind of resource anywhere in the world, in fact. Now, in the case of the Senkaku Islands, the, the issue is really how much pain the Japanese side is willing to accept. There's probably no other country in the world that responds so passive, passively and pacifistically to invasions of their territorial waters as Japan has been doing. Mm -hmm. There are no armed clashes, there are, and yet, you, everywhere else in the world, you know that if ships of another country, whether they be civilian or the, the uh, official Coast Guard or, or even the Navy ships, would come into the territorial waters uninvited and not go away, they'd sink them. Mm -hmm. If this was off the coast of Israel, if you worked you know, 30 kilometers out, they'd sink you. Right. But here in Japan, you can come right in, claim that this place is ours and go out, and the Japanese Coast Guard will, you know, they'll parallel you, they'll be very close by, but they won't do anything to interdict or, or, or in any way damage you. Well, there's been a lot of, you can see it on YouTube, in fact, where they're bumping, they're, they're uh, bruising the, the boats, the Chinese boats are doing the same thing. This has been a bit of a flashpoint as too. Yeah, it reached a crescendo and reached an ultimate point in 2010 when a Chinese fishing vessel, whether it was under the control of elements of the Chinese security forces or not, is always something that Japanese right-wingers talk about. Right. Yeah, and then, you know, he must be a captain in the, actually in the People's Liberation Army kind of thing. You kind of guess. Probably they do. I don't know. But anyway, this, this gentleman rammed not one, but two Japanese Coast Guard vessels. They took him into custody and brought him to Okinawa for prosecution. It caused a huge international incident, and eventually Japan backed down, let him go without charging him, sent him on his way, let the boat go that he had used to ram these vessels. But the Japanese side... Uh, has always basically gone down on bended knee mm -hmm. and, and simply taken all kinds of punishment. Now, there is a small chance that at some point someone's going to snap, mm -hmm. whether it will be on the Japanese Coast Guard side or on the Chinese side, and they start shooting. Mm. And the problem is, is in the Coast Guards are not like the self-defense forces. The self-defense forces have never shot anything in anger since their establishment. Mm -hmm. That's the amazing thing about Japan's military. It has never fired a shot in anger. It's fired three warning shots in all of its existence. The Coast Guard, by contrast, engages in battles all the time. They are the tough guys, mm -hmm. and they don't back down in a fight. If there is ever a fight in the Senkakus, they, it could get to very quickly up to uh, machine gun exchanges, mm -hmm. and then things get out of hand. Well, it probably just in its own context, that's unlikely to happen. It's probably, if, if something happens, it's probably in a greater geopolitical context of something else happening. It wouldn't probably be just a flashpoint there. It's hard to say because the something has to be a trigger mm -hmm. because we've had this ongoing grinding process of Chinese vessels coming in, trying to assert China's claims to sovereignty by having a presence there, mm -hmm. a constant presence, and the Japanese ships saying, please leave the area. It, it, it's, it's always gone 
fairly smoothly. As it stands right now, there is nobody residing on the islands, correct? That's right. And that's one of the other things that has to be appreciated about the, the Japanese restraint side. Restraint from both sides? But in this case, restraint from the Japanese side, especially Mr. Abe. Mr. Abe campaigned the first time in 2012 with a campaign promise to put Japanese, uh, he called it personnel, bureaucratic personnel, on the islands. Mm -hmm. uh, now, that in normal speech, that would be you put um, uh, an observers, a mm -hmm. clerk, or something. But in Japanese formal language, what that it means is SDF. Because the SDF, according to the definition inside the government, are merely personnel. They are bureaucratic, they're bureaucrats. Right. And uh, that was seen as an extremely provocative promise. Mm -hmm. He hasn't followed up on it. Okay, well, that's not the only issue. That's probably the most likely flashpoint that we're talking about. But there are a lot of other issues. Not a lot. There are three in particular. There's, there's the Senkaku Islands, there's the Takashima Islands, and there's the Northern Territory Islands. Plus, there are a lot of subsidiary things that are going on geopolitically as well. Yeah. The, in the case of, the, the, uh, of Takeshima, which is held currently by Korean uh, police forces and is called Dokdo, that, that island, Japan maintains a claim to that island based on an annexation of, that it did of it in 1905 mm -hmm. as a part of the annexation eventually of Korea. The an full annexation of Korea did not come until 1910. However, the Japanese government's actual actions to try to recover that island from South Korean uh, claims is basically on paper only. There's really not much that, that they do. Occasionally, they send a scientific survey ship in the, in the area. It's immediately met by South Korean Coast Guard. And there's never anything, even anything close to what happens in the Senkakus, where people actually try to make landings mm -hmm. on the islands. So that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. The other one is the one that Abe would dearly like to solve. And that's the Kuril Islands, the Northern Territories, Northern Territories. issue. Mm -hmm. He would love to be the prime minister who signs the peace treaty with, with Russia. Mm -hmm. Because World War II is not over. That's right. World War II is still ongoing. The two sides, even though they, have, they visit each other, uh, they even send generals to each other's military bases and also the admirals to their various ships, the two sides are technically at war. Yes. And the, there's been no peace treaty because of Russia occupation of what Japan says are its four northernmost islands. Mm -hmm. Well, the whole thing started at the end of World War II. The Soviet Union, uh, with Russia at that point, and Japan had a non-aggression pact, and the Russians broke that pact, nicely timed, right after the first bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Right. Yes. And I think it's, you know, it's seen as a dastardly thing to do that you guys invaded us. They were going to invade the rest of the islands too. Except MacArthur said um, we have more than two, mm -hmm. right? Right. Well, the the, uh, the declaration of war was something that Stalin had promised Truman, and so it wasn't as if the United States could say, "Whoa, that's yeah. that's not the way this is supposed to work out." The uh, the Russians were always supposed to, at some point, come into the war in Japan. the The decision was made for them when the the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, they immediately went into invasion mode and invaded Manchuria and then the northern part of, of Korea. 
it was all very fast mm -hmm. and caught millions of Japanese uh, by surprise in those areas. And many of them, tens of thousands of them, were sent to uh, prison camps in Siberia, where many tens of thousands of them died. Mm -hmm. So it's the Russian-Japan relationship is fraught and it's, and it's tragic. And the Japanese side really, really has no incentive to back off its claims for the four islands. That being said, Abe Shinzo would very dearly like to be the guy who puts the whole thing behind the two countries. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I guess Okinawa potentially fell into that category of disputed islands, disputed territories many, many years ago. That issue was resolved. Uh, the Northern Territories, I mean, they have almost a whole ministry devoted to the resolution of the Northern Territories issues. I think uh, since the time that they were invaded, now there are no Japanese nationals still living on the Northern Territories. If they were Japanese culturally or they were born Japanese, they're not Japanese anymore. Mm -hmm. They've allowed some uh, visa-less uh, exchanges recently. Um, just last week, there was supposed to be a group from Japan that was allowed visa-free travel to the Northern Territories. That was cut at the last day. Mm -hmm. but. The next week, there was a group from the Kuril Islands, the Northern Territories, that did visit into uh, northern Hokkaido. It's always been a question of whether they can go back and visit the family graves, mm -hmm. whether they can go back to their own home sites. The idea of talking about things like reparations or, or, or being remunerated for their lost property, that's way down the line. Mm -hmm. uh, but Prime Minister Abe, every year on February 7th, goes to the celebration of the Northern Territories Day. It's called Return of the Northern Territories National Committee. Mm -hmm. And he always gives a speech there and always promises that we're going to do something about your suffering, your loss of your, your homelands. The, it's very precisely worded though. It's, it doesn't say we're going to have all four islands back no matter what. It's a, it's a slightly weaker statement on the order of the basic plan of Japan is to get all four islands back, and we adhere to that basic plan, kind of a little fuzzy language, so that the 1956 gambit that the Soviet Union tossed out back when Okinawa was still being held by the United States, the Soviet Union said, you want to have a peace treaty? We'll give you two of the islands back. We keep two. We'll call it a deal. We'll call it a day. The United States pushed very hard on the government at the time to not accept that deal, mm -hmm. and they didn't. And so Japan got nothing, but in the, at the end of the day, you could say they got Okinawa as sort of a, a gift sure. on an accelerated basis, maybe much faster than they would have received it back from the United States if, it, if they had gone with the uh, 1956 offer. Mm. Um, I don't know if this is a fair question because uh, neither of us are, are Russian, but Given the dynamics, I'm wondering what the appetite is for the Russians to to really play hard on the return of the Northern Territories to Japan with uh, in opposition to the Japanese desire to have those four islands reunited with the nation. What do you think on that? What's, what's, what's your take? The thing is, is that it's always depended upon the, the personal popularity and the personal pull of the president of Russia. Mm -hmm. Ever since the first meetings that discussed it between Yeltsin and then Prime Minister Obuchi. 
over, okay, can we make some kind of deal? That right. happened in, in the, in the mid, late 90s. Uh, and they've, the prime ministers have gone to, mostly in Siberia sites, and, and Russian presidents have come to Japan on a fairly regular basis in order to see if there's some way to work things out. And Abe ha himself has met Putin at least 10 times. But Putin doesn't seem to be very interested in talking about the return of the Northern Territories. But at this point, Putin has two problems. He has a very low oil price, meaning that the Russian budget is completely out of whack because that's where most of Russia's money comes from mm -hmm. in terms of its, its governmental revenues. And also, the, he's an international pariah because of the actions in Crimea and Ukraine. So he can't really push his weight around. Well, he can, what, he, what he can do is say, you know, sometimes we give up territories too. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's possibly turning on some of the people in the Gaima show, in the foreign ministry here, and uh, maybe even in his geostrategic thinking, Mr. Abe thinks the same kind well, of thing. Sure, there's always a tit for a tat though, especially geopolitically. Yeah, and the thing is, the date of the Northern Territories Day is February 7th. Mm -hmm. And that date was chosen because it is the date of the original Russian-Japanese Treaty of Friendship in 1855. February 7th was the day. Mm -hmm. And in that treaty, those four islands are listed as Japanese. This is very different from the situation in the Senkakus or mm -hmm. in Takeshima, where there was a military or annexation or basically taking over either territories that had no authority over them or the other country had some kind of residual authority, right. uh, which Japan now denies. In the case of the Kuriles, the Northern Territories, it's actually all laid out. Yeah. And that is why uh, the Japanese side is another reason why they're so adamant about it, because it, it's in the treaty, mm -hmm. and they put the date on that, the, the celebration date on the date the treaty went into to effect. Well, the differences are just astounding. I mean, it is huge. The islands are, are huge. They're very rich in, in uh, timber and in fisheries. Uh, they're gorgeously beautiful. Mm. Active volcanoes, it's just uh, a wilderness, actually, undeveloped. Um, you know, they, they've got several small uh, Soviet towns there, but it is... Uh, um, it is an a, a unexplored and undeveloped wilderness. Yeah, and it, it, one would think that if that it had been returned to Japan sometimes, let's say, in the 1970s, it'd be covered in golf courses yes. now. <laughs> so they're, they're, for an, the environmentalist in some of us, uh, uh -huh. they would say, good thing that the Russians held on to it. And, sure. and there, it, there's, a, there's a certain truth to that. Um, one of the things I'd like to, to talk about in our, our next segment are the military threats and and the kind of geopolitical forces that are um, um, com uh, conspiring to make some of these issues really, really something that um, people need to watch out for. But before I get into that, I'd like to talk about uh, the coral poaching. This coral poaching has been, it's been in the news. Um, it's been really aggressive. The Japanese stance has been very, you know, let's watch what they're doing to our, our uh, territory and has really not taken much of an aggressive stance on that. The, the, uh, the presence of hundreds, not just a few dozen, but hundreds of Chinese trawlers scraping the bottom clean with these nets that they drag along it, just to, what, taking everything, all living things, not just these coral that are down there, right. and, and just 
scooping them up, taking coral, throwing what's left over back into the sea, and then, you know. Hightailing it back. And hightailing it back. What country puts up with this? I have no idea, and it's astounding, because what they do, I mean, the coral itself, they're after a special kind of coral, they apparently mm -hmm. take it back to China, they rework it into jewelry and, and, and that sort of thing, necklaces, and it's very highly prized, but there are only a couple of places in the world where this coral grows, and they're there big time. They're big time, and the things take hundreds of years to grow. Mm -hmm. Then you just, just with one pass. Now, the, the Japanese side uses the same method, but it was under an extremely controlled fishery, mm -hmm. and it was the fishermen who started pointing things out. There is a flip side to that, and that has to do with the senkakus, is that so many Japanese Coast Guard vessels and Coast Guard planes and all kinds of assets are currently involved in patrolling that area that other islands of Japan are being underserved. Okay. And that the, the buildup, Japan is in a serious buildup of the number of ships that it has in the Coast Guard, but it just has not been able to keep pace with the needs that have arisen. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're, running, they're, they're running the Coast Guard really hard. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the ideas that Japanese right-wingers say is that they're trying to grind our Coast Guard into the ground and drive them, you know, absolutely to exhaustion because they have so many assets to throw here at Japan. And the coral thieves were just part of that. I have a, uh, a friend here who is kind of the ambassador-in-waiting from Somalia. He's waiting for the Somalian government to coalesce to actually ask him, uh, the, the Japanese government has already been pretty much teed up. Uh, Somalia is probably one of the last countries to have a, an embassy in Japan. It does not now. It is, mm -hmm. It's um, actually just in, in, in the, uh, the beginning stages of being recognized as a, as a sovereign country. Mm -hmm. The capital city there is Mogadishu, and um, there are a lot of stories going on there, not only the piracy, uh, the movie with um, Tom Hanks, Hanks. Captain Phillips. Yeah. Captain Phillips, great movie. Mm -hmm. um, and when I first met this fellow, I, I talked about uh, Captain Tom Phillips, and he says, yeah, well, let, let's not talk about that, right? But um, he mentions the same thing. We, we got into a conversation about the coral poaching in Japan. He said, you would not believe what the Chinese did to us. Yeah, and it's, that's exactly right. The, the, the piracy story, according to most accounts, started from fishermen Somali fishermen trying to beat back Chinese fishing trawlers that had entered, because there's, there's no state there. So Somalia, whether they have an which economic has a, zone or not, the Chinese will come, just in come and, and so come. what, what are you going to do? Yeah, what are you going to do? And they did something. And then they found that holding people hostage and, and taking their ships was a big business. Mm -hmm. And it became a big business. And now it, they make hundreds of millions of dollars seizing ships all mm -hmm. the time, not necessarily Chinese ones. But many people say that the instigators were people just like the people coming for coral here. How about that? Because what, what he told me was they just pillaged the, the seafloor. And as a result of that, the fishing died down, the, the, the number of fish stopped plummeted, and they have to figure out some other way to feed their people. And they found that, um, you know, hijacking boats was, was pretty good. And they really don't have any alternative because indeed the, the fisheries destroyed. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're an absolute menace throughout the world. If you take, if you look at images from the International Space Station or from satellites, and you look at the East China Sea, which is 
divided between Japanese and Chinese zones. The East China Sea is a, is a sea of light, literally, of all these squid vessels with their high arc lamps. Okay, they use on. the lights and they attract the squid with from the depth. Webs, right. Right. It's, it's like a city. It is equivalent in brightness to a Tokyo or to an Osaka. And then there's just this line where the line of control is, and then it's blackness on the mm -hmm. Japanese side because the Japanese aren't, aren't into plundering, but they, the line is absolutely visible from space because the, the Chinese side is so denuded of fish, they, the only place that fish exist are ones that wander over from the Chinese, <laughs> from the Japanese side and by mistake and then immediately into the Chinese nets. Mm -hmm. It's freakish how much they are strip mining the world. Oh no, I mean, there was a report about the depletion of fish stocks globally right. and that it's reached a, a, a collapsing point that the graph is just going to tumble down. Mm -hmm. It's going to take thousands of years for the replenishment of any, any kind of edible fish to uh, to resurrect themselves. So, yeah, so, and then when someone says to you, "Oh, there's always going to be always going to be other fish in the sea," you see, no, no, <laughs> not the way that they fish nowadays. No, it's too efficient. It's no, it's too efficient, and there are too many of them, mm -hmm. uh, and that's been a problem. Now, in terms of the territoriality issue, Japan is also getting involved in, in the South China Sea. The United States, whether it's with collusion with the, the uh, Ministry of Defense or not has been pushing hard to have Japan take part in actions there where that becomes a big flashpoint. Okay, where, the Jap where the Japanese might get involved in that, the, the multiplayer game between China, the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Brunei, all of these countries with claims on the South China Sea, and then the United States Navy as well. Well, that's the big deal, isn't it? We've talked about this before. Collective self-defense means collective self-defense with our allies. We will protect you if you are under attack. If you are under attack, and that attack has any bearing on the survivability of Japan, we will assist you. And then we had the, the, the CNN crew going in, a, in one of these observation planes, U.S. observation planes, and recording the Chinese warning the plane to leave the area based on this claim that they have on the sea, uh, the U.S. will be engaging in provocative behavior and Japan will be dragged along. They will be called and in. that is affecting the debate in the diet currently mm -hmm. over the collective self-defense uh, legislation that's up. They're, okay. they're just, they're, it's the everything that's going on and and look who came this week the president of the philippines full state visit got to eat dinner with with the emperor it's top of it's the top of the agenda mm -hmm. and japan philippine relations are skyrocketing they're really going well and they just had the defense conclave in the philippines this last week and then, and uh, at the and in Singapore, the Shangri-La Dialogue, again, where Japan made a great number of promises mm -hmm. uh, through uh, Minister Nakatani. Nakatani's got his own challenges, though, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he, it, it's been a very brutal and ugly little game that's been going on. Mm -hmm. The opposition has been very organized and very careful about the language that it uses. Mm -hmm. It's not been, oh, the sky is falling, we're going to be sucked into a war. No, they very calmly work through the legislation and get the Minister of Defense and the Prime Minister saying two different things, mm -hmm. and then he's asking the other, what did the other guy mean when he said blah, blah, blah? Right. And it's, it's not been pretty. This is a bit of a diversion, but uh, in the Diet hearings, there was an opposition member 
who there's a certain amount of time that the question can be asked and the answer must be given. And she occupied almost all the time and was just kind of, she wasn't heckling the prime minister, but as a consequence of her not getting to the question, it was interpreted that he was heckling her. Why don't you get to the, the question? What are you going to ask me? And there's a, a there's a, a way to do that in, in that there's a, a certain decorum that he apparently violated and he had to apologize t- twice for. Yeah. Sujimoto Kiyomi has been a scourge for prime ministers for a long time. Uh, she uh, was a member of the Socialist Party, now she's a member of the DPJ. But uh, yeah, she was obviously goading him sure. on. And, and he does go over the top sometimes mm-hmm. and does heckle, even though he's in the prime ministerial role. He has in the past said you know, nasty comments mm-hmm. uh, about the other side and then getting reprimanded from the chair. So yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. the usual thing, but you have to wonder. How many, I mean, he's, this is not the first time. Could it be possible that he's actually just sending signals to, the, to his supporters? I haven't lost it. Right. I, I, I'm not Mr. Cool. I still have that hot-headed, hot-blooded reaction to people stepping on my, my flag. Mm-hmm. And you got to think that it's a dog whistle that only his supporters can hear. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, and the... <laughs> There is a fight that's going on. It's going on even even today. Mm-hmm. But the gloves not, are not really off. I mean, it is it is a a debate. It is a battle within the the diet chambers. But it's not really vicious. It's it's been worse before. But the opposition does want to stake its claim and wants to extract some concessions from it, the ruling coalition. It does. It uh, it it doesn't use all the techniques like sit down strikes, blocking the doors, or anything like that. But it'll do things like not showing up mm-hmm. and not telling anybody that it's not showing up so that the, the meeting goes to pieces mm-hmm. on live television. Uh, it's, it's just, yeah. yeah. And this is an administration that is where execution, execution, execution is the number one thing. Mm-hmm. That's the way they maintain their aura of power. Power. Uh, and because, because it's not clear where Abe is taking us in, in, a big, in the big picture. Mm-hmm. It's not like he said, these are the three things I want to get done. And uh, he, he's never actually been very clear about that. He's had hundreds of ideas. So they, what they like to do is to set up a schedule of easy to do things mm-hmm. and meet that schedule. And that's competence. That's mm-hmm. success. You know, it's not getting one big thing passed, like let's say uh, Obama and a healthcare package, right. right? It's not that. It's a whole bunch of little things. Mm-hmm. When that when their little schedule, their agenda goes astray, it, it makes them panicky. Mm. Getting back to the territorial issues, mm. you know, we've mentioned the three major ones, the Northern Territories, Takeshima, and the uh, Senkaku mm. Islands. There are other territorial disputes that are kind of just emerging from the ocean, quite literally. There's Okinotori Island, mm-hmm. which is not cr- quite an island, but let's call it an island because there is a dry spot on it at low tide. Mm-hmm. And then there's this massive project that the Chinese are doing with dumping billions of tons of sand and creating a man-made island and the implications of that. Yeah, there's a, a, really a, a certain uh, reticence on the part of Japan to really get into that issue because... They the, learned, I mean, the, the Tokyo did it first. Tokyo did it. And, and the thing is, it's a part of Tokyo. Mm-hmm. It's a part of the city. It's yes. a part of the metropolitan area. and. 
Ishihara Shintaro, God bless him, when he was governor, would love to take the plane all those thousands of kilometers to the south, and then it would somehow, it must have been a seaplane at some point, because there's no place to land. This is, the, the thing is, they are literally rocks. They're, they're it's no, a coral outcropping. Basically, yeah, and, and so two parts of it are above the water at high tide, and what Tokyo and the gov national government did was build a titanium dome over both of these rocks mm -hmm. and then surrounded them with the tetrapods, those wonderful concrete uh, things that they use to break waves, so that, yes, water can just barely reach it, but there's no way that erosion can in any way endanger these precious stones. And wouldn't you like to live there? Wouldn't you? No, yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, the thing is, it, it, it actually has led to a loss of lives. We had the, the, uh, right. the, the uh, platform that they were building there for workers to further improve this uh, defenses of these two rocks. And it overturned and five workers were killed and right. drowned underneath this giant platform. So it's not an inconsequential project. Mm -hmm. it, it, co it costs human lives. But it makes it impossible for Japan to say anything about what China's right. doing in the South China Sea. And look what China is doing. I mean, it's almost as if this is how we do it, right? And you can see satellite pictures of what's going on there. I mean, massive ships look like little toys and they're dredging the sand up and they're building you know, what looks like a, a runway, Good. dockside, and... Setting up a fait accompli. It's mm -hmm. done. We're already here. We have our, our anti-aircraft guns. We have our, our soldiers here. It's done. Mm -hmm. And what is any country going to do? Well, the, the, the greatest risk there is mostly on the Philippine side, is it not? Yeah. But it also has implications for Japan shipping and uh, the, the maritime um, uh, travel within the... the uh, inland uh, Japan Sea. Yeah, it, and, and the Chinese side, someone should confront them with saying, okay, you want to be in charge? Get rid of piracy in the South China Sea. And we talk about Somalia, and we talk about the area around the Malacca Straits as mm -hmm. zones of piracy. The South China Sea is the world's center in number of incidents every year. The, it's absolutely a lawless zone. Well, that's true. There's no one, there's no one country that takes responsibility for it. And it becomes just a free-for-all, for, and that is a great threat to shipping. And mm -hmm. yes, through the South China Sea goes a lot of Japan's trade, almost all of Japan's imported oil, almost all of China's imported oil, all through these, this, these waters. So yes, Japan has a tremendous interest, and the United States has a tremendous interest, and unfortunately, China itself thinks that it's, it's a Chinese lake. Mm -hmm. Last week, we talked about freedom of the press in Japan, and we talked about a barometer of uh, free press and not very free press, a, a barometer that is judged each year. And I'm wondering, on a scale of conflict, risk of conflict, the same kind of barometer, with these three territories, and maybe with the, the dumping of the sand in, in uh, uh, the dumping of sand on, to, to create a man-made island, essentially, mm -hmm. um, what the barometer is right now for any of these to be a real flashpoint? I, I don't know about the situation in Takeshima or the Kurils. I can say about the Senkakus, however, that it's a lot of it's for show. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is for both sides to claim, in the Japanese side, that it's claiming to defend the territories, the inherent territories of Japan. Right. Uh, which makes it equivalent that the Senkakus are the equivalent of Honshu. 
right, the inherent territories of Which Japan. is what the prime minister claims. In, in claims uh, whereas the Chinese side, for its, ne- for its political needs, claims that it's going to liberate these from, from China, Japanese occupation. You have to get a sense that a lot of it is for domestic purposes and domestic audiences to consume. Mm-hmm. That's not probably the case in the South China Sea, where actual construction is going on. There's nothing happening on the Senkakus. Nobody's there. Right. The, the only time that the Japanese side even lands there is to do checks on the lighthouse that's required by international shipping law. And they have taken on responsibility for that. And even those things, China protests, mm-hmm. even though it's required under the International Ship Maritime uh, Organization's rules. This is completely different from what's going on in uh, the South China Sea. And there, with the only thing that really prevents the Philippines from taking on China is the fact that it, its military is minor, uh, its ships are smaller and fewer. It's, it's a power game. Mm-hmm. But at some point, somebody might snap. Wasn't there some agreement that was made between the Philippines and the Japanese self-defense forces on doing some joint training? The last, last week they were in town, uh, the president was in town. I think there was some discussions made about that. Yeah, and certainly Japan sells its old Coast Guard vessels uh, to the Philippines to upgrade its abilities mm-hmm. to control its and defend its own seas. And that's going to be an ongoing thing. There's certainly a lot of training that's got done by Japanese Coast Guard of Philippine Coast Guard. So it's a, it's a, it's a dicey situation. But the Philippines and Japan are both uh, democratic countries. They're both countries with a lot of potential for each other. De- Philippines has a huge youthful population Mm-hmm. Where, which can be of tremendous help economically for Japan with its very old population. And certainly there are already Filipino nurses who are trying to work here in Japan. But there's probably going to be a lot more Filipinos moving into Japan who, and uh, living here mm-hmm. as a part of maintaining the country's labor force. And if there's a security side to it, it's what makes it all the sweeter, a relationship. Sure, sure. Well, you can't... You can't deny that there's got to be um, a, a larger context of this. I mean, the, the prime minister is pushing hard for a revision of the Japanese constitution to embody collective self-defense. Actually, he'd like to take a little bit farther, but mm. let's just start with collective self-defense. Mm. And that would involve South Korea, the Philippines, maybe Singapore, uh, the um, uh, Malaysia, some of the other allies that are in the uh, South Pacific. Certainly the United States would love it if South Korea and Japan could get on the same page. Mm -hmm. And if South Korean forces were, if they were under attack, that Japanese forces could go to their aid. That's something the United States would love to set up. And no person who knows the politics of this area would ever think possible. But it's, you know, but stranger things have happened. Well, I think everybody knows that if there is a conflict, the United States will be right there. I right. mean, that will probably, the flash will be caused because of the United States did something or somebody did something to the United States, not to Japan. It would probably be, you know, the, the big brother in, in the neighborhood who is flying too close to a Soviet ship or who is overseeing the construction of a, a man-made island, something like that, because some of those incidents are being reported even now. The thing is, is it, it could be a purely Japanese thing that gets Japan going. 
we know that Japan's jets have been scrambling at a much higher rate, mm -hmm. both in terms of intrusions in the airspace from coming from the Chinese, but also from the Russians, who for a long time after the end of the Cold War sort of backed off on that kind of provocative flying of bombers or fighters near Japanese, mm -hmm. uh, near the Japanese air defense zone. Uh, that's gone up tempo, way, way up. And that's another avenue that can get a war started. Mm -hmm. And that's a flashpoint, not so much as a territorial issue, but in terms of, you know, Japan has an ADIZ, China now has one over the East China Sea, and they overlap. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, there is struggle there and up in the skies that's going on all the time. I don't know about you, I think the underlying goal here is exactly that, the, the, um, the expansion of the exclusive economic zone for mining the sea, for uh, pumping out oil or um, nitrate. Okay, no, or methane, methane, methane hydrates. Methane hydrates. Yeah, right. the, 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 uh, that always makes it easier when the Ministry of Industry, uh, Economics, Trade and Industry can join hands with the Defense Ministry saying, we've got to do this. Mm -hmm. It's always easier. And the same is true on the Chinese side, that their industrial ministries join hands with their defense people, the, the, the People's Liberation Army, and say, we've got to do this in order to get these resources that are there. Whether mm -hmm. there's, it's really harvestable, whether it's economically sound, whether it in any way compares to the costs of conflict between East Asia's greatest powers and economic powers, not just military mm -hmm. powers, that part gets lost in the, you know, there's oil down there story. Yeah, well, who knows? I mean, the technology is not here now. It's like data vacuuming. It's like big data. We don't know how we can actually masticate that, but the technology will eventually come if you have a big enough data set. Probably something will be, be able to be generated from that. If we want to be more positive and, and be less pessimistic, mm -hmm. we have to say uh, that Xi Jinping seems to be clearly in charge of China. There's no struggle at the top. Anyone who seems to be going against him is being charged with corruption and driven out and mm -hmm. all that person's faction and followers is being driven out. So that she is finally in a really stable position and really in charge. That means that there is less of a need to rally the country around him or take the focus away from the, the fighting that goes on inside the halls of Be Beijing's power brokers. Right. Instead, let's go you know, mess around with the Japanese. That, that's not there. And the same holds true in terms of Abe. Mm -hmm. Abe can be a, on a much slower pace. He doesn't have to put personnel on the Senkakus right now because he's going to be in office a long time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the really provocative stuff that could be happening is probably been put on the back burner because both of those leaders have established themselves. Mm -hmm. And Abe and, and Xi are in for the long term. And at that point, the, the domestic pressures to, to force an issue are much less. Abe himself, he's not going to Yaskuni. He's not rallying the troops that way. Mm -hmm. That's really a big change and something that I thought that he really couldn't do, but he's shown himself to be capable of looking at the long term. Mm -hmm. you know, I don't have to score points early with my team for my uh, my base. So is it accurate to say that of these issues, they're probably all back burner issues. They're not real flashpoints that are something's going to happen in the immediate short term. 
if you don't pay attention to them, they'll, they'll, they'll bite you. Mm -hmm. But if you do pay attention to them to a reasonable extent and, and keep aware of the things that could go wrong and get, stay on top of that, it's not going to hurt the country as much as other things that could go wrong. The only thing that probably could come up is um, this sense of nationalism that has been pretty much played down. If that flared either here or in Korea, in China, um, that could be uh, something that uh, would guide the leadership to take some other steps. It's hard to say because mm. it's hard to always to know in the case of, especially of China, uh, with its so-called 50 cent army of bloggers who post um, provocative things about other countries like the United States and Japan uh, for, a smart, for a small fee that eventually has to be paid out of taxpayer right. money, that to what extent the government is really behind everything. Mm -hmm. And the same is true in Russia with its, uh, its netizens are mm -hmm. similarly defensive and, and, and crude. Uh, when the government says, back off, do they, will it back off? And I, I think there's, there are incentives that are really strong on both sides, on all the sides, everywhere, mm -hmm. to back off. Well, That's not the case, however, with South Korea because it's a democracy. And there, the people who are virulent about uh, not uh, giving Japan an inch, whether it has to do with territorial issues like Takeshima or things such as the comfort women, their version of the comfort women story, that looks to me not a flashpoint, but looks something that just can't be solved. Okay, well, with that comment, I'd like to draw today's discussion to a close. You've been watching Tokyo on Fire. Our burning issue today has been territorial disputes. If you'd like to participate in the conversation, please post your comments directly into YouTube in the comment box, or you can reach us at comments at tokyoonfire.com. We are also available on Twitter at hashtag tokyoonfire. In addition, this podcast is downloadable on iTunes. Please join in the conversation, stay tuned, and look forward to seeing you next week.